Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockett, Follow Your Different. And we are the Real Dialogue Podcast, or some people call us an oddcast, for entrepreneurs, marketers, and category designers with a different mind. This episode is part of a very special two-part series that we are doing on how to design a legendary career, company, and category. So as the old expression goes, hear me now and understand me later, this two-part series is a masterclass in how to have a legendary career in technology with both a male superstar sales executive and a female superstar marketing executive. Now, the marketing executive's name is Gail Moody Bird, and she's on our next episode. And there you will learn how to lead a major business unit within a $2 trillion value company, in this case, Microsoft and a division of LinkedIn, on a major new category design for maximum results. And it is a stunning, stunning conversation. So to make sure that you get um, this next episode with Gail at LinkedIn, um, why don't you uh, follow or um, subscribe to or whatever thing you're supposed to do now with podcasts uh, right now, and then your career will thank you. Okay, this episode. Wowie wee wow, this episode. My guess is you're not going to listen to this one once. My guess is, and uh, actually my recommendation is, just listen to this dialogue now. Just just get into it. Just allow yourself to get into it. And then maybe go back through this with a fine-tooth pen. That is to say, take a ton of notes. Because this is a conversation I've been waiting to have for over six years since we started this podcast. Because our guest today has been a material contributor to creating well over $40 billion in market value over his legendary career. And frankly... He's one of the most legendary sales, revenue, and frankly, overall company leaders I've met or ever had the pleasure of working with. And his name is Joe Sexton. And I'm glad to call him a friend and a colleague. Joe started his career, like a lot of salespeople do, as a frontline sales rep. He became a sales leader of ever-increasing responsibility over time at companies like CA Technologies, Mercury Interactive, where we worked together, and, and Joe was a rock star. McAfee, and then uh, most recently, App Dynamics, which was acquired by Cisco for almost $4 billion. Joe has been the man on the hook to deliver the quarter for over 25 years. And his ability to own the revenue number in the now term while building the business and the category for the mid to long term is a superpower. There are many people who would easily pay $25,000 to have lunch with Joe. And today, you got them for free. Now, most CEOs have a tough time answering the most important question in business, which is, are we going to meet, beat, or miss on revenue? And in tough times, the inability to answer this simple question can be devastating. According to research from my friends at Clary, the average company has 14.9% revenue leak. And revenue leak is revenue that you've earned, but for one reason or another, falls through the cracks. And in good times and bad, every drop of revenue matters. So go to Clary.com, that's C-L-A-R-I.com, and there you'll find your revenue leak calculator, and you can calculate how much revenue leak 
you might be experiencing. That's Clary.com. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. In business, we get paid to solve problems and we get trained to ask why many times. You know, the axiom, ask why five to seven times. Today, you ask somebody about anything they have an opinion about, any, any hot button thing, abortion, crime, immigration, guns, you pick your thing. You say, okay, well, so why do you feel that way? Oh, well, da, 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 da. Okay, well, Tell me more about why that. Right. They're done. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> it's almost like pulling the string, right? I, would, I mean, when the doll's done talking, it's like there's, there's nothing left. <laughs> no. There's a, like, <laughs> I, I saw this clip on YouTube recently, uh, the comedian John Klepper from The Daily Show, and he did a piece on Hunter Biden's laptop. And he interviewed a bunch of people. Say, well, you know, what do you think about Hunter Biden's laptop? Oh, well, it was terrible. And da, 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 they really need to. Da, 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 da. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, w- w- why? Well, because, you know, they, we need to look into these things. Well, what, what have you heard what's on the laptop? Uh, <laughs> they got nothing. They've got, they literally can't tell you why. They don't know. They can't. I mean, the answer to the question, of course, is. He appears to be a real shady dude, and there's a chance he did some shady shit. And if he did some shady shit, depending on what kind of shady shit it is, we need to know. Because his father's the president, and maybe he's a criminal, and if that's true, and he was trading on the name, we need to know that. And if not, then fine. But but my point is, he interviews these people, and they can't even tell you why they're upset about it. Yeah, I served on a jury um, about three weeks ago, and they had a hundred people in there to interview. I unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know, I got got picked. And man, they asked all hundred people at, at one time a separate question. And I was sitting there thinking, man, this is a cross section of of our uh, society. And it was, whew, it was. <laughs> if I'm if I'm the guy on trial, I'm sitting there thinking, man, I don't, I don't know if I want my my fate in the, the hands of twelve of these dudes or not. So it was. It was uh, really, really. What kind of case was it? It was, Joe? Uh, it was uh, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, and uh, we ended up convicting the guy. It's public now, so I can talk about it. But it was, it gave him twenty years, and he was a, he was a homeless dude um, on a train. There's a train that runs between Fort Worth and Dallas, and the conductor uh, went up to him on the second level and and uh, was telling him, "Hey, look, this is the last run of the day. We're not going all the way to Dallas. We're going to stop halfway." And, you know, service the train. So he said, my job is to do that so that people know. And the guy jumps up and whips out a box cutter and starts, you know, kind of waving it at him. So he turns around and starts running. He said, the guy's punched me in the back of the head. Well, it turns out he was stabbed. Me. And so he turns around to defend himself and he pins the guy under a table and he takes a box cutter and cuts him from his shoulder all the way down to his hip and flayed him open. I mean, several people called it, you know, look like filleting a fish. And, you know, really just it was sad because it ruined the guy's life and he's got PTSD, can't work, uh, just doing his job. Now, what was interesting is the defendant's story was it was self-defense. So that was day two. And 
his story was I was sitting there, the conductor comes up and shakes me. And so I jump up and like, you know, what's up? And the guy and the conductor knocks me down the stairs. So I run back up the stairs. He takes his foot, kicks me in the head, knocks me back down again. So I run back up again. So anyway, you know, I, I was the foreman on the jury and I'm like, okay, let's think about this. One guy's got stab wounds in the back of his head. He's a conductor. I mean, you know, I don't think they go around shaking people. The other guy's story is he gets knocked down the stairs twice and comes back up. That's not self-defense. Self-defense, you get knocked down the stairs, you go call the police, right? So anyway, it was a, it was a, uh, it was quite a, quite a case. And, uh, you know, I, I ended up looking back on it. I felt good about it because kind of got, you know, the guy was basically mentally ill and uh, got him off the street for 20 years. So, you know, sad anybody has to do that. I mean, I even told the jurors, I said, look, if I had my choice, we'd put him in a mental facility, but we don't have that option. I mean, the, is he guilty or not? And it's it, it's it's certainly not self-defense. So anyway, it was uh, interesting when you got to see the inner workings of our justice system. And in this case, I think it worked. That's amazing. And I'm, you know, given you split your time between California and Texas, uh, when, the minute you said it was in Texas, I was like, well, well, yeah, that's why the guy went to jail because... Crime is legal here in California. Well, at one time, so I was the foreman. We got back in the in the jury room to you know declare a verdict, and it was ten guilty. Because I said, let's do a let's do a kind of a rough assessment to see where we are. So ten were like guilty, including me. One guy was like, eh, I'm kind of I don't know, don't, don't really care for the police, and I don't know how to do anything. But it's like, so I'm I'm kind of on the fence. And then one guy was like, well, you know, I don't understand why he would do that, and what would cause him to do it. And it doesn't make sense. And so I said. You know, look, I, I lived in San Francisco for eight years and, you know, you spend a lot of time out there trying to figure out why people do things. Well, let me tell you why. It's crazy. And our responsibility, I think, if we're going to do our civic duty is. And so let me ask you the question. Would you want to sit next to this guy on a train? Would you want your family sitting next to him? Would, would society, you know, exposed to him? And she immediately flipped to guilty and, and kind of saw the logic of that. Right. It's like we're not here to try to determine why he did it. It's he did it. He hurt this guy and ruined his life. And that was really the sad part. So, um, yeah, but it, it started going down that path with her. And and then the other guy's like, yeah, you're right. He's guilty. So, you know, we, uh, you know, the state wanted 30 years. We, we gave him 20. Uh, it was a second offense because after you, you know, reach a verdict, then they can tell you priors. And he had, he had had, uh, assault with uh with deadly bodily injury with, without a without a weapon so he'd already he'd already done prison time so he was 29 and you know hopefully when he gets out in 20 years or so he'll he'll calm down a little bit well thank you for doing your civic duty i appreciate it and uh we need to take crime seriously in this country the average uh, murderer does 15 years the average rapist does two and a half years. The average violent criminal does two years. And I was just reading a story on LinkedIn today, Joe, that um, uh, Walmart and Target on their earnings calls both said that robbery was up. And it was up so significantly that um, they're going to have to raise prices to deal right. with it. And, um, you know, in San Francisco... Uh, I believe it was Walgreens and there were a few others who just said, fuck this, we're out of here. Yeah, we can't uh, can't sustain it. As a matter of fact, uh, we had a place up there, like I said, for, I think it was around eight years and uh, the crime. You know, the thing with COVID in big cities, I've always had this philosophy that in big cities, if there's a lot of people, there's safety in that, right? But with COVID, 
all of a sudden there wasn't a lot of people. And, you know, you had some folks out there that, you know, felt like they could probably get away with some things that they couldn't before. And uh, the final straw, we had our daughter up there and uh, about a block away. So she's, you know, right out of college, 22, a block away from where she was taking a walk. Uh, another little gal, same age, out walking her dog. These four guys roll up, jump out, you know, pistol whipper, stole her dog. And, you know, that was a block away from where my daughter was. And I'm like, you know, can't, I can't sleep at night, you know, wondering if she's going to be safe just out taking a walk. So that was kind of the final straw for us. So not so much on San Francisco. I mean, you know, great city, man. I mean, you know, we have, you know, you're talking about being up there the other night. It's food food and it's a walking city and the weather. I mean, that's, that's the thing when you spend a lot of time there, you realize the weather there is really, really nice uh, more often than not. And um, so anyway, hopefully it'll, it'll make its way back to, to what it was. Yes. Let's hope. Now, um, you look great, Joe. It's so great to see you. And, and I, I, I must tell you, every memory I have of you and working together is fucking legendary. <laughs> I fucking love every memory, which means I loved every minute of working with you. Uh, you are such an extraordinary leader and you're fun. And man, oh man, do you put some moose on the hood? You, like, you deliver the fucking revenue. Well, I got to, I got to tell you, Christopher, the the feelings mutual, and and I was so looking forward to being able to visit with you on a podcast because I still, I still, uh, you know, distinctly remember every time you spoke, and uh, of course, everybody talks about the red shoes and you know what a good speaker you were, but just. I look back at our days together at Mercury and, and the whole BTO, business technology optimization, which you uh, you coined. And I used that throughout my career since then. I mean, you know, the whole, how do you change the conversation? You know, being in technology sales from techno speak to what's the outcome you're trying to drive for the business? And, you know, that really kind of launched me down that path and uh, have had some really good outcomes because of that. Um, just really counseling CEOs and, and actually myself. I mean, you know, I, I went to McAfee and, and we changed the conversation to, you know, instead of great security, well, you know, how about great security with a great business outcome uh, along, along with it and app dynamics and, and then CrowdStrike uh, helped them uh, as well as PagerDuty, both of them go public. And that was the key is, you know, always remembering why do people buy technology and it's not because it's cool or you know it's uh it's it's the whiz bang stuff it's because you can solve a hard problem and drive a business outcome and and what we did at mercury with your leadership to move it from i, I always tell people when i got there and you went to a cio and said you know i've got some some testing software he'd say okay we're well, down in the basement there's some folks you can go talk to and we elevated that conversation to you know you get ready to launch oracle or sap or some game changing, uh, you know, business application, you want to make sure that thing works uh, or your business is going to crater as a result. All of a sudden we got CIOs as, as well as CFOs and even CEOs uh, to pay attention. So, you know, I, I look back at that time and what I learned from you and have carried that forward with me ever since. Well, that's very kind of you to say. And there are some, some learnings from Mercury. I really want to unpack um, with you, but before we get there, 
you know, one of the things as you were sort of going through the list of companies that is incredible about you is, you know, there are a lot of people in business who never have a, a big outcome. They're never part of a big success. And then there's some people who are part of one, but sort of never another one. Your track record of success, of picking great categories, companies, leadership teams, technologies, and associating yourself, whether it's as an advisor, board member type guy that, you know, clearly you do much more of today or back in your operating days, you know, like when you went to um, AppD, like you, you made that company because what, what was the founder's name? Jody Bonzel. Yeah. And uh, he's. And I, I had met him, um, but he didn't know shit from Shinola about marketing or sales. Yeah. And that was actually to be uh, candid about it. That's what attracted me to him because my experience in the Valley, the Silicon Valley is, and, and you know, I've spoken literally to well over a hundred CEOs, uh, you know, in my board role, you know, kind of talking to various ones that were interested in putting me on a board or advisory board or whatever, as well as I did some work with, uh, as an executive advisor with Lightspeed and Greylock and so on. So, and I heard pitch after pitch after pitch and 99 times out of a hundred, you know, after a half hour of passionate, you know, talk and presentation by the CEO, I'd say, I've been doing this 35 years and I don't understand what you said. I mean, I, I don't even understand what you do. But Jody, the, the thing that made him so unique is he knew what he knew, which was a lot. He was a really smart guy, uh, brilliant as a, fa- a matter of fact, but he also knew what he didn't. And we kind of struck an agreement that, you know, he would really focus on the R&D development side. Uh, I would focus on the business side. Now, today, um, he could teach a class on enterprise selling because he's a sponge. I mean, he's an incredibly uh, bright guy. He's got another startup that's uh, just got a valuation for $3.7 billion. He's got another one that's got uh, probably $500 million valuation. So he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. But the one thing I really enjoyed about him is we had a partnership and, you know, he, he knew what he was good at and executed. I kind of was allowed to run my route and we had a really good outcome there. Um, got acquired the day before we were going public. I was on a plane <laughs> heading to New York to to ring the bell and uh, you know, Cisco comes in and plops down $3.7 billion in cash. But uh, yeah, he was, he was an extraordinary individual. And congratulations on that outcome. And I, I remember when that <laughs> happened saying to my wife, well, <laughs> it's a pretty good day at the Sexton house today. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story about it is I was on this plane, right? And so there's an emergency meeting. Uh, it's a, it's a video call. Now, on planes, American Airlines, you're not supposed to be able to, you know, use GoGo at the time to get into these video calls. But somehow I was able to get into it. And, you know, the meeting starts. And again, remember, I'm going to New York. I mean, we're going up to ring the bell. And all of a sudden, this guy walks out. You know, Jody introduced him, David Woodwani, and uh, who was the CEO at the time. And, and uh, I thought, I recognize that guy. <clears throat> and then he starts talking. And he said, you know, we really we're a customer of yours. We're a partner. And we want to take it to another level. And, you know, we're going to acquire you guys. So it was Chuck Robbins, right, the, the CEO. Here was the funny part. It didn't say for how much. So I'm sitting here with 200 strangers <clears throat> not understanding, you know, is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I mean, you know, is uh, so and – I, and I landed. My wife uh, had, had already – for some reason, I couldn't Google it and find it out. But uh, anyway, she knew. And 
So it ended up being a good outcome. The funny part is we had a lot of R&D folks who went out and bought a suit for the first time because they were going to New York and uh, and going to be able to be on stage, ring the bell and so forth. And they were they were disappointed in a kind of a, a funny way. But, you know, there were 444 millionaires created uh, from that event. And, you know, you look back at things like that and being able to change people's family uh, trajectory and outcome. It's uh, something I'm very proud of. And, you know, that's that's why you do what you do. Um, you see others, you know, have have kind of their careers and, and family paths change in a positive way. And you've done it over and over and over and over again. I mean, your list of wins is n- n- insanity. And did did you start it? I know you were at Computer Associates CA. Uh, did you start there? You know, I think, so the first thing I did coming out of college, I worked for a company called Triad, which, which sold computers to auto parts guys. And I worked in the mountains of Eastern Kentucky. And the reason why that's relevant is because it's the last thing they wanted to talk about was computers back in those days. I, I have several of them that would run me out of their shops with monkey wrenches because uh, they, they just didn't, didn't trust the whole concept. But the first real <laughs> big job I had, a uh, big company in a way, was Computer Associates. But what's interesting is when I joined there, they were a $167 million company. And the reason why I went there, I had two choices. One was the downtown territory for ADP, and it was the, the new car dealership uh, side of the business. And ADP was a great company. The other one was CA. Little company, nobody had heard of it, but I had a really good friend who was Charles Wong, the, the founder's uh, stockbroker. And he said, you need to go hook your wagon to this guy because he's incredibly bright. I think this company is going to be something. So I kind of took took that chance based on his advice. And when I left 11 years later, we were a $4 billion uh, software company. So it was a great ride. Uh, you know, a lot of hard things is a lot of companies, you know, I'd compare it to like an Oracle or, you know, a Siebel. Some of these companies that, you know, have tremendous success. It's hard, but you learn a lot. Um, some good things and, and some things not to do, which is, is still learning. Um, and, but that was, that was my first kind of real enterprise software company um, stint. And um, I, I think that was... And you started off as a rep, did you not? Sales, sales rep. rep? Sales rep, yeah. I, <clears throat> I was a sales rep for about a year. Then they, they created this... And, and I was in a... So, so if you think about CA, they were systems management, was 95% of their business. Well, I started off in the financial software side of things, which is 5% of the business. Um, we acquired a company called Software International. And so I started off as a rep, uh, ended up, uh, they, they took a chance and said, we're going to do this concept called a branch manager. We want you to be the first guy, see how it goes. So they moved me to Hollywood, Florida from Atlanta. And uh, we ended up, that branch did more than the entire region combined. And, uh, <clears throat> and so there was an opportunity you know, with that kind of track record, um, there was, a, I always wanted to be a VP and there was an opening at the time in Atlanta. And so I thought, man, this is my chance. Well, what happened at the same time is we acquired another company called Colonet and a guy came in who was going to run the Eastern half of the company, the country, um, which I was part of, and he already had a guy for Atlanta. So I was like, man, you know, that was my chance. Well, this guy decided he didn't want to work for CA. So I bought my own plane ticket, with my own money. I flew up to New York. Uh, was a guy named Arnie Mazur, who was uh, who was running worldwide sales, and I marched into his office. And this uh, this admin of his, Christine Moore, great gal, she she said, "Who are you?" And I said, "Well, you tell Arnie. He doesn't know who I am, but I'm his next VP for the South." 
And she goes, he's not going to see you. I mean, he's busy. And, uh, you, you know, it's, I said, well, I spent my own money to come up here and I'm not leaving until I talk to him. He's got to go to the bathroom. She goes, well, he's got his own bathroom in the office. <laughs> I said, okay, well, you still got to go home. So if it takes all day, I'm going to wait all day. And so periodically throughout the day, you know, yeah, he's still here. You know, the phone would ring. And so finally she goes, okay, you got five minutes. And so I go in there and I'm on the edge of my seat. I got all my data in front of me and I just start pitching him. And about 15 minutes into it, he starts laughing. And I said, what, what, what's so funny? I mean, I spent $1,200, which even now is a lot of money. I said, but back then it was a lot of money to, to come up here on my own dime. I, I don't see why this is funny. He goes, just hold on a second. So he calls uh, Rich Shirello, who was the guy that was running the East. And he comes in and he says, I want to introduce you to your new uh, South VP. And, um, and Rich is like, oh, great, great, great. And Rich, Rich and I ended up getting along great after that. But I'll never forget, it. we went out in the hallway after that. And, uh, and Rich looked at me. He goes, look, you little son of a bitch. I don't appreciate what you did. He goes, not a quarter, but if you miss a month, I'm going to fire you. Are we clear? And I said, crystal. <laughs> and so I ended up being the VP of the year for him. And uh, like I said, we got along great after that. But that was, that was one of those opportunities where, you know, I look back at that and think, you know, sometimes you just got to go for it. And, um, you know, if, if, if they're not going to recognize it, then you got to help them recognize it. And you got to have the facts and the data to back you up. It's not just because you want to do it. Uh, you should be qualified to do it. But that was that was really where I got a, what I'd look at as a pretty big break, because uh, from then I went to be senior VP and ended up having a great career there. Well, and you made that break and I've watched you do this. I mean, I saw you get promoted. I don't know. Certainly once a big, big promotion, but probably more than once. And and you create these opportunities, Joe. And so let's say I was a younger person in my career and you just told me that story. And I said, well, hey, Uncle Joe, um, I, I want to be like you. How, how do I think about creating opportunities like that? Seeing them, creating them? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I've spoken to a lot of young people and, and they always ask the question, okay, what's the one thing? And so the answer, first of all, to address your specific question, I think you've got to have the track record and the data to back you up. And I mean, to your point, when I was at Mercury, um, I joined there as a central area VP, which coming from CA as a senior VP was kind of a step back, but I looked at it as I'm going to bet on myself. And, um, and I'll never forget, I, I had the, uh, the interview with Amnon, Amnon Landon, and, uh, there was two other people competing for the, for the role. And I went in with the data and, and I just laid it in front of him and he said, what's that? And I said, that's my interview. I mean, if, if you want the other two guys, one's been here for a long time and the other one's really good at a certain element. But if you want somebody who's proven for, for all aspects and, and based on the track record, even though I hadn't been there that long. I'm your guy. So I think the, the, the main thing for young folks is, you know, when you're going to go for it, you, you got to have some things that you can you can be backed up with. It can't be because a lot of people misread that and think, well, all I got to do is just be aggressive and, and go and demand something or expect something. You know, and, and a lot of times there's some entitlement that comes with because you've been somewhere for a while or and, and, and certainly nowadays it seems like <clears throat> things are kind of, you know, now instead of, uh, instead of, you know, the way it used to be where you had to spend a fair amount of time. But I think you got to have that track record and you got to have the results. 
the one thing I, I've always told people, the one secret, and I know this is going to sound kind of overly simplistic, but I really believe it. I said, you know, in the end, and the one thing I always prided myself when I was a rep and all the way through my career, I was tried to be the first one there and the last one to leave when, when I was when I was in the office um, doing my thing, because I think over time, I'm not the smartest guy, not the most talented guy, but there's no substitute for outworking the other guy. And always remember, it's a friendly competition, your colleagues, right? That's what you're doing. You're competing against them uh, in a friendly way. But in the end, you know, that's how you move up and get promoted is, is uh, through results. And I think a lot of that comes from this, you know, outworking the other guy. Um, you know, it's, I never forget having that conversation. I spoke to about 300 people in inside sales and I've said that exact thing. And so I was, went back in an office and, you know, sat there for a while and I was, I was on the board. So it wasn't like I was out there doing operational stuff, but I walked out at five 30 and there was one guy sitting there and I said, so what are you still doing here? And he goes, well, I listened to what you said. You know I mean? It's like you said, you know, be the first one here and the last one to leave. You're still here. And I said, okay. And uh, he ends up, he's a CRO now. So he's gone on to be really successful and so on. But it was just kind of, it kind of stunned me a little bit that, you know, after having that very talk, uh, that very same day, it was, it was almost like in one ear and out the other. So, you know, sounds overly simplistic, but, but you know, that's, uh, that's one thing I'm, I'm a firm believer in. Well, and I think it needs to be said we live at this weird ass time where, you know, people tell you to, you got to build a brand, a personal brand. <laughs> and I always tell people, no, first of all, you're a person, not a product. Right. So you're not a fucking brand. Right. That's just a fucking dumb idea. Right. Secondarily, brands are made up. I mean, I'm a CMO. Right. You decide, oh, what qualities, attributes do we want in our brand? You, you invent the brand. You create a brand. You're a person. And, and so what I say is explain to people what you actually want is not a made-up, contrived brand. What you want is a reputation. Right. Yes. And so when you show up in Amnon's office – yeah, I, I I knew you'd be. I saw you get promoted more than once, mm -hmm. and and you're competing to go from the guy running the West to the guy running uh, North America sales, and you show up and you you show the, your results. Here's how many quarters I've been here. Here was my quota. Here's what percent of my quota I hit. Here are my averages. Here da 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 da. Here are the biggest deals I you know whatever the fuck you showed them. I'm assuming it's those kinds yes. of things. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so. You're like, all right, that's my interview. You said that. And Amnon went, fuck, it's not even, it's not even close. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Amnon was one and of those I remember, guys. <laughs> I remember when you got, what was that? Sorry, Joe. I said Amnon's one of those guys. It's, you know, cut to it. It's, uh, there's not a lot of fluff there. <laughs> no, not a lot of fluff at, at all. You're, you're talking to an Israeli tank commander. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Chris, Chris, what is this bullshit in marketing? <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget. So it was fairly early after I joined. And of course I knew him well, cause I'd been consulting as you know. And, uh, so it was, I don't know, maybe the second or third earnings call uh, after I joined. 
And we wrote his script for him. We'd write the first draft and then jam off that, right? So I remember walking to his office. Uh, and, you know, I mean, one of, the, one of the cool things about Mercury, and it's one of the cool things about working in person that, of course, we don't really have today, is we had a culture of just drop in. I mean, doors yes. were open, and we just dropped in on each other a lot. So anyway, I, I, I don't know why I dropped in, but I, I dropped in, and he goes, oh, Chris, I, I want to ask you about the earnings script. I looked at it. So, oh, great. Uh, he says, I have a question. Does somebody in marketing get a bonus every time I say strategic. (laughs) (laughs) So he had, you know, what I love about those, those tough guys is a lot of them have a a great sense of humor. Incredible. Incredible Um, sense of humor. My my memory of him was he stood up in front of the company one time and we were really doing well. And it was very short and simple. He said, if you are here to rest, just to vest, we will find you. <laughs> and it was a very short, simple, and powerful message. <laughs> uh, so tough. Yeah. So, so tough. Now, how do you think about, um, you know, categories, companies, and technologies when you're looking, you know, when you were that kid and you then went to go from CA to your next one and then your next one. And then as you matured and gained experience post Mercury, uh, your tr- like your post Mercury track record is fucking bananas, and so you you must have a lens, some kind of a mental framework, Joe, for picking where you want to go next. There's three, um, really three things that I try to focus on, and what I learned from Charles Wong as well as Amnon, and then subsequently, you know, after that was you've got to start with a CEO. Um, if you don't have a CEO who kind of gets it, um, and when I say get it, I mean, they know they don't have all the answers. Um, they're, they're maniacal about bringing in great people and, and, and letting them do their thing, uh, holding people accountable. But at the same time, it's all about, from a leadership perspective, it's all about recruiting that talent to the Jim Collins, good to great. I mean, I'm a strong believer in that because it makes your life a lot easier. So that CEO is somebody who's willing to listen, who's very, very smart, but at the same time gets, you know, how much talent means. The second thing is, is, is really trying to, to make sure that the space, uh, the problem you're solving um, and the outcome that you drive from the solution is meaningful. So it can't be just because it's cool and, you know, it's, it's cutting edge because nobody's done it. No, is it, is it solving something that is meaningful to the business? Um, because if not, and, and to that end, the space, you know, the, the potential, the TAM, if you will, total addressable market has to be meaningful. Um, so, so those two things, the third thing, this one's one, uh, a lot of folks laugh at, but the software has got to work. And, you know, you know, I've been in an enterprise software. I always say there's, you know, there's companies I've been with and have a lot of products. And some of those products I sell to my mama. And some of those products, I'd say, you know, not 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 yet, mom. I mean, let's let's give it a little time. But in the end, the core products have to work, and they have to do what it is you say they do, and um, especially at scale. So you put those three factors together, and that's the reason why I chose that dynamics. I thought it was a big space. I thought Jody was a brilliant CEO, uh, and the product worked. You could literally download it over the internet um, without talking to anybody. And I had some really smart pe- uh, technical people validate that for me. 
and same thing with McAfee with DeWald and, and, you know, big space. Uh, it was a really, really good product. They were number two by a long shot to Symantec at the time in enterprise software. And all we did, and I kind of, this is back to your BTO lesson you taught me was we just re-swizzled how we told the story because we had an advantage over Symantec. They had this thing called CEP 11, which is a new release. You had to Un, undo the current and redo, you know, the new one, the forklift upgrade, if you will. So if you're going to do that, once you look at me and at McAfee, we had the ability to consolidate all these agents, which was a tremendous business uh, value driver. And so we, we branded it security connected uh, platform and, you know, went to market with that and, and crushed them. And it was basically the same technology, but it was just a, just a different way of messaging it and driving that, uh, that business outcome. So and, and, you know, same way with CrowdStrike and PagerDuty and some of the others. It's great CEOs, uh, products that work in a meaningful category drive, you know, significant business outcomes. Well, and uh, CrowdStrike was one of the biggest IPOs of what was it about? How long ago was it, Joe? The CrowdStrike uh, two, 2019. IPO? They, they literally got yeah. up to before the whole reset in the market we're seeing today. They got up to a $60 billion valuation, um, largest, most valuable security company on the planet. And, you know, George Kurtz, you just can't say enough good things about him as a CEO. And, and he and I were together at McAfee. I ran global sales. And he ran uh, the CTO, the technical side of things. And so I knew George and he knew me. And really, I'll, I'll never be able to uh, thank him enough because he's the one that took a chance on me. Uh, and I was at AppDynamics, but he asked me to be on his board. And, um, and, and I accepted and, and we did some really fun things together, but so he took a chance on me and he kind of, he was the first one that I saw that recognized having a sales mind on a board is valuable. You, know, you get a lot of spreadsheet guys, you get a lot of, you know, guys who are, who are good at numbers and so forth. Um, but you know, the majority of board meetings, a lot of times are talking about sales in the top line and growth and so on. And so to have somebody with that kind of input, I think he recognized as, as being meaningful. And um, so that was, that, was a, that was a great ride with him. Unbelievable. So number one, CEO. Number two, space, which would you equate space? In, like I would, I would equate space with category. Yeah, total right. addressable market. How big can the category be? Yep. Slash outcome. Right. What's the outcome that we're promising in this space? And then the, the software's got to work. Correct. Correct. So those are three simple things. Yes. And yet, Hard to find. Most, most people make, you know, we, we've, we've, of course, since Mercury had many people go on to have incredible careers. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and also many go on to do donuts in the parking lot and never, never, have anything close to mercury and i always wonder why like why is it people are so bad sometimes at picking their next opportunity and um your model is a simple one and i i I believe in it as well it's exactly what i look at Mm -hmm. it's exactly what i look at before getting involved with you know christopher bad analogy but it's almost like how simple is it to have a great restaurant you got to have great service and great food right um, but yet they're really hard to find. Now, San Francisco being aside, right? But I mean, typically, so very simple formula, but, you know, very hard to, to do. And that's why sometimes it's hard to pick them because 
even though they're simple, they're simple criteria. Um, there is some, some nuances to it. Um, and, and, and then, you know, I think the other thing I'll say, at least from a sales perspective, um, is the methodology matters. Um, and, and by that, I mean, you know, you've got to drive your salespeople to sell value. So I'm a real big believer in that. Um, that's what people buy. I mean, if you think about yourself, there's three questions you ask when you buy something. Why do I need to buy anything? You know, is there a problem I need to solve that, you know, uh, is meaningful? And I agree that you may have the solution. Number two is why you, what makes you unique uh, versus your competitors. And then the third thing is why wait? And that's, that's the one that <clears throat> today a lot of salespeople don't get. Um, if you don't answer that question, not just answer it, but so that your prospect embraces it. And now all of a sudden they're your advocate because they have to go sell people when you're not in the room. They got to go explain. And now with the economy doing what it's doing, you got to go into a room with a CFO. And sometimes now it's two and three times, right? Because things are tight and getting tighter. And if you don't have really good, solid answers that you and your team are willing to stand up to and support and advocate for, uh, you as a sales rep won't get that deal. And you probably won't know why. They'll give you all kinds of reasons and excuses. You certainly won't get it in your time frame. You won't get it to really what a fair deal is for you or what you forecast. Um, and, and many times you won't get the deal at all. So those three questions, I think, are crucial. And um, So problem, unique, and the last one is? Why now? In other words, why now? what's compelling Wait, yeah. about the business case that you should want to do? I mean, at App Dynamics, I'll tell you, time after time, there was no budget for what we did, but we helped create it because we were convincing enough that what we do would be so meaningful to your, you know, you think about it, it was, it was all about uh, digital transformation. So if you're going to put this new digital solution to go to market, uh, to, to be the face of your company, um, it, it better work, you know, and it better perform. And, you know, time and time again, they would, the folks would launch something all of a sudden online, it doesn't work or it's slow. And, you know, so, so that was uh, something we were able to convince people that you're betting your business on this digital transformation. Why would you do that if you didn't know for sure in, in real time? Uh, not only was it performing the way your customers expected to, but if it wasn't quickly identify why it wasn't and, and solve that. So uh, thank you for that. That was awesome. So let, let's go, let's go here. Um, sort of two parallel threads, the recession one, because you've been through many and had much success through them and challenges, of course, problems. Um, so that's one area I want to uh, jump into. And there's an area that sits right next to it. And I was actually talking to a CEO about this yesterday, which is the difference from a sales perspective uh, from responding to customers versus setting the agenda in the account um, so that you are creating the opportunity. There's no budget. Maybe they weren't thinking about, you know, whatever it is, you help create the opportunity as opposed to just respond to the opportunity. And to me, those two things, you know, in a recession, the ability to um, create budget um, becomes even more important. So I'm very curious, Joe, how you think about these things. Two, two separate things. You're right. I mean, on a recession perspective, our biggest year at McAfee was 2008. So if you think about that, everybody knows what happened in 2008. It wasn't a banner year for the economy. 
But yet we were able to convince people, you got to have security. I mean, it's not a nice to have. It's, you know, it's a, it's a have to have. And in our case, um, we were looking to take out the biggest uh, competitor, Symantec. And so the way we position that is, you know, it's not just about great security, but can you drive a business outcome? Can you reduce the cost? Can you reduce the cost of people and the infrastructure and uh, even the support and so forth? So that business case was vital. And that's why it's so important in a recession that, you know, things will get tight and people will, you know, pull back in terms of what they'll spend. But still, enterprises are ongoing concerns, right? I mean, you can't just totally stop spending. Um, And so the goal becomes, okay, how do I, I always tell people, look, when things are going great, there's 10 things people will buy, right? When things get tight, there's three. And so now all of a sudden, you don't have to beat just your competitor. You've got to move up to those top three initiatives. And those top three initiatives are something totally different from what you do. And you've got to justify in the prospect's mind that you made the top three. And they have to be able to go and advocate and explain it. See, that's the hard part is people get so caught up in the gobbledygook and the and the acronyms and so on, um, you're going to go explain that to a business person who doesn't even understand what you're saying if you talk that way. So you've got to be able to go and explain it in business uh, terms and concepts. And I think as things get tighter, that's what people have to understand. You've got to, you got to elevate your game and be in that top three or whatever that number is, wherever the hurdle rate is uh, for businesses to do business with you. Otherwise, you know, you may win, you'll beat your competitor. You still don't get a deal. In terms of creating, and again, we did this at AppDynamics, um, if somebody, and, and usually that involves, you know, somebody didn't know it was possible, right? So, yeah, I'm getting ready to launch this application. I, I'll give you a great example. So at a very large bank over in the UK, um, they rolled out a, a digital uh, mobile banking application. And we were in there in the test side of things. And they, they wouldn't let us go in production. So they launched and totally crashed. So in the UK, it was in the newspapers, on the internet. I mean, it was unbelievably embarrassing. The regulators were getting involved over a two-day period before they got it fixed. So after it got fixed, as I told my guy, do not go in there, you know, in the middle of the, of the fire. After it got fixed, RSE walked in and said, was this the line of code that caused that? And they said, how did you know that? And he said, I knew in nine seconds. So we get the CEO of that division to come over to California and, and we, we asked him, we said, now we know because it was public, you know, what happened you know, how painful was that? He said, oh my gosh, I, I thought I was going to lose my job. I mean, it's, it was, it was horrible. And so we told him, well, you may not know this, but here's what we we're able to do in nine seconds versus two days. He goes back and calls a meeting with all of his direct reports and introduces our sales rep. This is so-and-so from AppDynamics. You're going to buy what he's selling. Uh, you know, within reason, it ended up being a multi-million dollar deal because they have something that could have helped solve that problem that took us two days to solve. Hurt our brand, uh, probably lost a lot of customers, cost us revenue, tremendous expense. And so we were able to create uh, basically a multi-million dollar transaction when there hadn't been budget because they weren't aware that something possible was was what app dynamics you know delivered was even out there and once we made them aware of that then they quickly found the budget joe yeah is it wrong for one man to love another man 
<laughs> yeah, it, it, it's called getting in there, building those relationships, and 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 having the business conversation. This is something that always perplexes me, which is in the technology business anyway. Um, the company that elevates out of the carbidingulation and into a business outcome discussion wins always. every time, always, every fucking time. Right. And yet our whole industry, you know, with some exceptions, of course, really wants to have a carbidingulation discussion. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell and you, so, I don't know why this is, it's not like Moses with the tablets. This should be obvious, but it's interesting you know, in every um, company, with every company virtually that's in B two B that I've advised since our time together at Mercury, that's all I do. I to create the new category, to design the new category, I go to your three things, and the second one around the outcome. Right. And uh, earlier, you talked about the the problem, so I go to the problem and the outcome, mm -hmm. and I say, how do we reframe this stuff? in a business context around an outcome that matters. And if you do that well, or even if you do it medium, you're probably going to win because most of your competitors are having a speeds and feeds discussion. Correct. And, you know, back to uh, CrowdStrike and George Kurtz. I mean, I know, you know, for a fact that George on any kind of significant deal, if he was asked to speak to the prospect, and you did not have a business case, he wouldn't take the call. He's like, why do you want me on a call that's going to be the purpose from the prospect is how do we get close to zero versus talking about the value we deliver? I'm not doing it. And he was extremely, and I'm sure still is, extremely disciplined about that because he understands, yeah, you, you, you're wanting to provide great security, but you know, kind of what does that mean to the business? Um, and in terms of business terms, it's not it's not the, like you said, the speeds and the fees and the gobbledygook. It's, you know, how's that impact our business from a dollars and cents, from a risk, from a, you know, a, a time to uh, solve something for customer satisfaction, all those business metrics that, you know, CEOs and the boards are, are paid to, you know, be able to, to deliver and prove. Um, and, and that's the language they speak. And, you know, so to his credit, I mean, he's, he clearly gets it. And I, and I, I have no doubt in my mind the reason why they became the most valuable security company on the planet at one point when the market was really, you know, on fire was exactly that because he, he, he understood that in spades. Yes. Uh, now you are no bullshit, Joe, one of the greatest leaders I've ever worked with. Well, I appreciate that. Chris, and bro. your ability, no, really. And your ability to lead a sales team is extraordinary. And I've, and I've seen you lead the entire company. Uh, I'll never forget that speech you gave in Israel uh, <laughs> when, when we did the quote unquote sales kickoff for, for uh, R and D. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I quote you all the time. I try to do the accent, you know, and the good news is the truth is on our side. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you telling the engineers that so, there's so many good Joe isms, but, but how do you think about leadership? And particularly, of course, leading a sales organization that is has got to be so results oriented. Um, tell me a little bit about that. So, leadership to me is a uh, deliberate um, 
thing that you you set about to do. And I and I've always had three core values. And and every time I talk to a group of three or four or more, I always start with those because I always, I want people to understand what makes me tick because that allows us to work together a lot more effectively. And so the first one's integrity. And I always say that you know when you're you're growing up as a kid, your parents you know don't lie. I mean, tell the truth, the whole truth, all the time, and you know, in that way, in business, it's the concept. There is I can't make good business decisions if if you're misleading, and sometimes it's right out, you know, flat out telling a lie or leaving things out. Either way, it's bad. So, got to have tremendous integrity. You'll never get in trouble for telling the truth because, you know, for me, to to be able to fail and learn from it is part of leadership and, and people growing. So now if you do it twice, eh, we've got an issue, right? you got to learn from it, right? But uh, so integrity is number one. Number two is family. And what I mean by that is not your family at home because, you know, there's no substitute. Nothing's even close to your, your, uh, your family, your direct family, your relatives. But, you know, family from a work perspective. So we spend so much time at work, not just being at work, but thinking about work. So think about even on the weekends when you're operational, you're always thinking about, you know, work. It's, it's. A little sad, but sometimes you just can't help it. So if we're going to do that, then I want to be able to behave like a family. And I always tell people I had three sisters growing up and, you know, I could pick on them and, and give them a hard time. But, you know, God helped somebody who did something, you know, to them outside the family. And it's the same concept. It's like, look, we're going to argue. We're going to debate. We're going to challenge each other. But once we make a decision to go, we're aligned and we're aligned as a family. And I've always believed that a company like that that behaves like that and thinks like that cannot be beaten, right? Because they're, they're they're so strong, um, you know. You know, from the the collective um, many coming together as from a single purpose. The third one's altruism, and you know, altruism. Uh, being a guy from Kentucky, that's a big word. So it's it's a fancy word for helping others get what they want, <laughs> right? I mean, so you, know, you Southern guys are awesome at what you just did. <laughs> You, you really, that, that you use your, your charm and your accent and the, ah, shucks, I'm just a dumb guy thing a lot, right? It's, <laughs> it's part of the charm. Well, in, in this case, I think. You know the word altruism. <laughs> You're one of the smartest people I know. Like, well, for a guy from the South, that's a big word. <laughs> yeah, I always said, uh, I always said, just because I talk slow doesn't mean I think slow. But uh, so, you know, helping, helping people get what they want and whether it's your prospects, your customers, your colleagues, your leaders, uh, people that work for you. If you really have that kind of servant um, attitude and heart, not just talk about it, but actually think that way and try to behave that way, um, you'll get more than you'll ever need. And I, I'm a big, big Zig Ziglar fan. I mean, you know, he's long since left us, but that that whole you know, helping people get what they want, you'll get everything you want is, is, is core um, to my belief system. And then, and then the other one's the personal side. I mean, I think, Christopher, we're in such a fortunate industry, made more money than, I mean, I know that I've ever dreamed was possible. And, and all the folks I've worked with all feel the same way. So why not give back, um, you know, and give back to your community in terms of money, but also your time and your expertise. And uh, when I was at McAfee, we started we started uh, St. Jude's Children's Hospital because I've always believed that children's cancer, you can pick a lot of things, but there's nothing more unfair than that. And we did a fun run uh, in the in the spring and a, and a golf tournament in the fall. And then we just had a lot of uh, effort towards that. And I was really probably most proud of uh, McAfee. When I left, 
Because when I started that, people were like, well, why can't we do this? Why can't we do that? I said, you can. I mean, this is one that is personal for me and, and I'm going to drive it, but please have at it. So we formed a committee. I think there was about six people on it. And when I left McAfee, there was 125, uh, 125 uh, initiatives that, you know, everything from dogs to, I mean, you name it, right? It was what was personally important to people. And I think that that's so important in leadership that people feel connected to a company they can be proud of, right? When you go to a cocktail party and somebody says, who you work for? You, you want to sit there and say, oh man, I was hoping that question wouldn't come up. You know, you want to be able to say, well, I work for so-and-so and you puff your chest out and you're proud and and you feel like you're you're part of something that's more than just about making money because plenty of places to go work and make money, but you want to be part of something that you feel like that's making a difference and helping folks. So th- th- those are those are the things I always tried to share. And from a leadership perspective, I always thought those were important. I love you, Joe. I could listen to you talk about that shit forever, that Zig Ziglar <laughs> shit and all that. It's incredible. Now, he- here's the other thing. In sales, the measurement is clear and it happens four times a year. And sometimes it happens 12 times a year. But four times a year... You either delivered or you didn't deliver. And I saw you hit the number over and oh, like it was ridiculous. And so how do you hit the number every quarter, Joe? You know, I think uh, as a sales leader, um, you have to have the attitude. Even when I became, you know, CRO at uh, where there's app dynamics and I was CRO at, uh, at McAfee, uh, you know, at the end there, you have to have an attitude, in my opinion, that you're a salesperson that has happens to have the biggest quota. So in other words, the, the responsibility starts and ends with you. And if you have that attitude, it's not about, well, you know, my people didn't do this. My people didn't, you know, step up. It's no, I mean, you own it yourself. And then you, you, you know, you, you split up and delegate and, we used to have, uh, you know, kind of divide and conquer. So, you know, if you're if you do a forecast, for example, and you're a month out and you're you've got a gap, well, the attitude has to be: How are we going to close that gap? And I'm going to own some of this. You're going to own some of this, and together we're going to collectively come together and and make sure we don't miss. And, but I think it starts with the attitude of, you know, you're the one that's ultimately on the hook, and. You know, it's a, it's a lonely place to be. You look behind you, there's nobody standing there if you miss. But you got to have the attitude that I own it. I'm responsible for this. And I got a whole team of folks to help me get there. Um, but you got to have that personal responsibility, I think. Now, I remember our culture at Mercury and our sales culture at Mercury very, very well. And we had as legendary a sales cu- culture as I've ever seen. Yes. Uh, certainly been a part of the most legendary sales culture I've personally been in my operating career. And subsequent to that, Joe, as a, as an advisor, board member type guy, as I'm sure you do, you get invited to uh, QBRs. Sometimes you sit on a forecast call, you know, these sorts of things, even in a board meeting, reviewing a forecast for the quarter or, or what have you. And, what I'm always amazed at, particularly with a QBR where the reps are presenting, you know, what's going to happen. Um, I'm always amazed in these meetings because at Mercury, what I remember, you tell me if I'm remembering this right or it's been too many whiskeys. Um, 
But I remember watching you in QBRs spending some meaningful amount of time throwing deals off the forecast because you'd, you'd have a set of questions you wanted to ask the reps. And, you know, to your point on the business case uh, with the CrowdStrike folks, you know, you had a set of criteria that you were looking for for this deal to be on the on the forecast this quarter. And if your Joe's criteria wasn't met, you had to take that deal off the quarter. And then sometimes the rep would argue and then you would argue back and da, 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 da. And maybe if maybe if the rep was persuasive, you'd leave the deal on the on the forecast. But and I ever since then, I've never been to a quarterly business review where the senior leader is pushing the reps hard and 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 testing whether or not this deal should be on the forecast or not. Am I remembering this right? You are. And I think it goes fundamentally, salespeople are optimists. And the one thing sales reps in particular will get if you're not careful is happy years, right? So they'll tell you all the reasons why a deal can happen. But but great salespeople and, and their leaders always want to know, okay, where are the gaps? Tell, tell me, let's talk about, you know, why this deal may not happen. And then I think the thing that, you know, is, is missing a lot of times, the sales leader's job is to help fill those gaps. It's not only to help the rep see the gaps, but to give them ideas. This is not, I mean, otherwise just send in a spreadsheet. If we're not going to have a conversation about how we can, you know, collectively help you close those gaps to get a deal. So the first thing is, you know, let's get the happy ears off and, and really identify where the gaps are. But then the second thing is, and, and again, this could be somebody in R&D can help you or marketing or executive management or a colleague because they've got a reference. In other words, the job of a sales leader is they've got this wide view across the organization of many deals and many sales reps and experience. Um, and, and how can you use that to bring that to bear to A, get the rep to recognize you got gaps here, but just as importantly, here's how you can potentially close those gaps. Now, if you can't be convinced that the gaps can be closed in that time frame. That's when you got to pull the deal off because what you have to push people for, things happen, right? So you're going to give me a commit, <clears throat> ride it in blood and all these different you know ways of talking about what your commit is. But the real issue is, okay, when things happen, what do you have as backup to make sure that you can slide something else in? And a lot of times, you know, there's not enough time and attention put on that because things will happen. I don't care how solid and how good it looks and Maybe it has no gaps, but, you know, over a course of, uh, of a quarter, things will happen. and You got to be able to backfill those with uh, with other qualified deals. And I've seen you do it. It's incredible. <laughs> and that discipline is not normal. Uh, you know, I mean, I've been involved with I mean, I can't even count how many companies in the uh, is it been. I think it's been 15 fucking years. Yeah. 2007 when uh when uh, Mercury got acquired. Yeah. yeah. So, so another thing I wanted to uh, sort of unpack with you is um, most of the time in our industry, the guy that does my kind of job and the guy that, or, or gal for that matter, of course, that does your kind of job aren't exactly friendly. Matter of fact, often they're at odds with each other and I'll never forget um, do you remember Carol who was on my oh, team? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So she had joined the company and she hadn't been with us for too long. And I guess you wanted an update on, uh, our conference Mercury world, which you were always a huge supporter of, which mm -hmm. was amazing because you understood 
what can happen mm-hmm. if you if you do it right. Anyway, so she comes into my office and she says, uh, "Hey, Christopher, um, I got a meeting request from Joe Sexton. He wants to meet with me to go through what's going on at Mercury World." I said, "Okay." She said, "Well, you weren't on the meeting request." I said, "So," and she said, "Well." Um, how does, you know, chain of command, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, chain of command? <laughs> Fuck chain of command. If our head of uh, worldwide sales wants to talk to you, I think you should talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> and if something comes up in the meeting, you need to let me know about by all means, but I don't have to be there. And she looked at me with this amazement. And one of the things that I try to coach uh, leaders on is, this amazing culture we had at Mercury where we were all up in each other's business a lot. And uh, I couldn't give a shit if, if you or uh, R and D leaders or I, whoever, I don't care if I need to know about it, tell me about it. But otherwise I I don't even need to know about it. And so what's your perspective on how sales and marketing can work together? And I mean, I found it pretty remarkable, the relationship, not, not only you and I personally, myself with the other sales leaders, but all across marketing and sales was very healthy. I know, I know how it looked from my perspective, but I'm very curious how, how that happens from your perspective. Well, I've always believed strongly it's called sales and marketing for a reason because there should be an interlock there. And a lot of times you see conflict because there's this, well, who, who's responsible for a deal? I mean, in the end, who cares, right? It's, it's you're going to achieve a lot more if you have this mode of, you know, we're going to help each other. And sometimes, you know, it could be sales leading the way and sometimes it could be marketing or many times both, you know, Jay Larson, um, who, who you remember uh, was my boss at the time. And he used to call my sales reps all the time. And, and I had zero issue with that because, you know, what I learned is you got to be confident enough that, you know, the, a lot of the answers are down the stack. And I've always said that in, in big companies, if you think about it, and you can think of some large companies, where do they really struggle? Middle management is where big companies go to die. And the reason for that is because the, the frontline people are out there trying to do the right thing. The executives want to do the right thing. But sometimes in middle management, the, the safe answer is no. You know, saying yes to something, now you're taking a risk. And, you know, if you can just work with those folks and try to understand and have them understand what it is you're after, that you're, you're really not here to, you know, to get them in trouble or anything. It's here to help. And I always looked at the, the Mercury world. It was a year selling in about three days. I mean, that's why I always thought that was so important. It's like, man, I'm going to have prospects and customers together. So number one, they can, they can sell each other. I'm going to have my best leadership, my best talent, you know, technically, executive-wise, all that coming together. And, and so for me, that was the best selling opportunity the whole year. And, you know, marketing drove that. And, and, you know, what you depend on is it's going to be worth the prospect or customer's time, right? Because it's not just the expense of, of going there. It's a, it's a time cost to them. So you want to make sure, you know, they come away with a, with a lot of value and a lot of knowledge and things they couldn't get. And that was, the, that was the big thing. I want you to be able to come and get things there you could not get by just staying in your company and out in the field. And, you know, you guys delivered that in spades. And so I was, I was really interested with Carol of just understanding, you know, what was going to be uh, presented there so that I could help sell that. 
right? And help my guys sell it. And so we treated, we treated Mercury World and did it at McAfee and at Dynamics and on and on and on. You know, people had quotas for it because as a sales rep, why wouldn't you want a, a year long selling effort to take place in three days? Why wouldn't you want all your prospects, all your customers to attend that? So, you know, having that attitude that you can't do that in just sales, you got to have marketing's help. And, and that interlock is, is to me, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of silly uh, to get into the, you know, who did what that's, it's pointless and it's a waste of time. Well, it's interesting when you said uh, the CRO is a sales rep with the, the sales rep with the biggest quota and you own it period. I tell this to young marketers, new CMOs all the time. You own the number, not the head of sales. Yeah. It's your number. Yeah. Because if we miss the number, we're all going down. Correct. And of course, as a public company, missing the number can mean a 30 to 50% drop in market cap. Yes. Right. And yes. so uh, don't be confused. Right. We own the number. Right. And if you think you own the number and I think I own the number and the CFO thinks she owns the number and the CEO thinks she owns the number, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's a lot of ownership around the number. <laughs> yes, correct. And there's alignment, right? There's alignment. Instead of finger pointing, there's ownership. Yes. The other thing that I always did um, is the sort of bitching and infighting that is common between marketing and sales. Uh, I said, and I'm curious how you handled it. Uh, I said, listen, I'll have none of it. Zero. Zero. You're not blaming them for anything. They're not stupid. Eh, there's some people who are better than others, whatever. But that's true in any organization. And when they say they need something or whatever it is, um, then we need to pay attention. Because to your point, it's called sales and marketing for a reason. And anybody who wanted to bitch about, oh, well, those assholes and sales are really, or they're not, like, hey, no, no, you're not allowed to say that. You are not allowed to say that. Oh, we have a problem between marketing and sales. Salespeople are saying this or whatever. Whatever it is, fine. Let's go deal with it. But I, I was not going to tolerate any of the typical blame game bullshit. I'm curious how you dealt with that on the selling side. You know, it's it's you because he, I, I give you an example. So I won't name the company, but I used to hear a lot from sales reps. I'm not getting qualified leads. You know, that's marketing's not giving me anything. And so I had quotas are too high yeah, yeah. and we don't have enough leads Yeah, enough <laughs> and the product doesn't work. Well, and I knew talking to the CMO that we were giving him plenty of qualified leads. So I had him build me a little app that I put on my phone and by rep, I could see the, the leads they had gotten when they had gotten them and what they had done with them. So I'd go out and do my, you know, windshield time with these reps and they'd start hammering about, man, you know, cause I, I was marketing. Oh, it's been six months since I've gotten a lead. So I just pull out my phone. I'd say, that's interesting because I'm sitting there looking at three leads that you haven't even opened yet. So how do you explain that? I did that about two or three times. And of course, the the, uh, you know, the network solved that. And, and, and so they started, you know, doing things with the leads they should have been doing. And it's it's kind of it's it's this, it's it's easy to blame somebody else. Right. And it's easy to say I'm not getting enough of something. You know, and I'm, I'm doing everything I should be doing when reality is everybody can be better. But, you know, let's let's approach this as we're here for the same reason at the end. I mean, we all want the same thing. Right. 
We want to win the business. We want to beat the competition. And again, think about that family thing. The competition's not in here. It's out there. And, you know, competing and beating somebody internally um, that's in a different group. There's one thing to compete in terms of moving up the ladder, but in a different group is counterproductive. And, you know, that's going backwards, not forwards. So for, for, for me, it was a natural, you know, this, this whole sales marketing interlock is, is just natural. And sales is the tip of the spear. I mean, you're out there talking to prospects and customers and bringing that back to the various people in the company. Um, but marketing is, is getting your name out there and, and getting you those opportunities and making things easier for you and so on. And, and you should be this in this attitude of, okay, if they're not doing as much as I want, help them understand, you know, what they can do that would be helpful and, 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 and vice versa. Right. So, you know, because to your point, nobody gets paid until somebody sells something. So I, I'll never forget and kind of digress for a minute, but one of the greatest examples I ever saw from a leadership perspective was back in CA's early days. Uh, we had a horrid quarter. I mean, we missed and missed badly and, and the stock tanked and Charles, you know, who was a pretty, you know, he was a pretty, uh, aggressive person. Let's just say that. And he was a great leader, but man, he was, he was all about, you know, performance and execution and so on. And so I'm going to New York thinking, my goodness, I mean, this is, this is going to be brutal. Right. Um, and lo and behold, he, he gets us all together. And he says, I'm having these T-shirts printed up. And on the T-shirt, it said, have you, have you hugged your salesperson today? And he said, I'm giving this to everybody in the company. And because the message here is, yeah, sales is the tip of the spear and everybody's going to be blaming sales and so forth. We're all in this together. And if we don't realize that sales is our way out of this and we got to help support them as collectively as a team from R&D all the way through uh, to sales. And, and what I learned from that is, is that the, the bigger message is when things are going rough, if you've got great people doing the right thing, you love on them. When things are going well, is kind of when you get on them. And, and I remember after I was done operationally, people would say to me, now I figured out what you were doing. Because when things were going great, you were hard on us. And we were like, what's wrong with him? I mean, we just, we just crushed it. He's not happy. Well, it's complacency you're trying to guard against. And, and vice versa, when things are going tough, you know, that's, that's when you got to, you know, wrap your arms around him and say, okay, you know, we got into this together. We're going to get out of this together. And uh, so, so anyway, I, I kind of got off topic there, but that was a, that was a big learning for me early in my career. You can digress as much as you want with me forever. <laughs> <laughs> now I want to take you back to towards the end of Mercury. It's November, I think 2005. Uh-huh. And we are one of the companies identified by the federal government for this stock option backdating accounting problem. We were the first. Yeah. And I'll never forget it. It was November 11th. Mm-hmm. And we fired Amnon, our CEO. Yep. We fired our CFO uh-huh. and our GC Correct. in one day. Correct. And the stock tanked, and many of the employees' stock options were underwater, and uh, and the thing was a mess. And it's Q4. Correct. And it's November, and in November we have Thanksgiving, 
obviously Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and of course Christmas and all the other holidays around in December. And so all of the competition says we're done. We're going out of business. Don't buy from us. The employees are afraid. And then we delivered the biggest revenue sales quarter ever in our history. Correct. With so few days left in the quarter and with everybody betting against us and customers who were signing multi-million dollar deals had very big questions for all of us. Mm-hmm. So take me back to that time and what you remember about what you, the sales team, and, and all of us broadly did to take the, the most challenging situation or certainly one of the most challenging situations a company can ever be in and then deliver literally the biggest quarter in the company's history. It was to this day, I remember it like it was yesterday because it was so significant and made such a big impression on me. And, and to complete that story, we were the first one. The last one, I think, was 125 companies in was Apple. So Apple was the golden goose and Steve Jobs. And it's like, eh, OK, uh, that issue's over. But Nevertheless, I mean, we were we were the first one out of the gate. The thing I remember distinctly, and, and this really gets back to what we did as a company. And, you know, to Amnon's credit, he would think nothing of putting somebody on a plane from Israel out of R&D and sending them overnight to go fix a customer issue. I'll never forget, um, you know, we, we came out with a with a product. It was a platform uh, called Test Center. And we had a really big customer that signed up for it and it didn't work. And he said, I'll be back. And he went over to Israel and I don't know what he did over there. About 30 days later, it was fixed. My point is we were obsessed with customer success, not satisfaction because satisfaction is too low of a bar, customer success. And I remember countless customers and prospects, customers in particular said, we don't want you guys to fail. We will not allow you to fail because you've always been there for us. And, you know, they were getting the emails from the competitors. Mercury's done. You know, their three top executives got sent home. They're going out of business. They'll go bankrupt and so on. And the customers are like, not so fast. I mean, you've been there over the years for us. And now you're going through this tough time. We're going to be there for you. It was stunning. And, and, and I'll never forget it. I've, I've used it ever since that if you really focus on customers being successful, with you know what they're buying from you, they'll always always be there for you, um, and and you know that that thing to this day was it was just stunning because I mean when the when the news happened I'm like you I'm like oh my gosh I mean we're we're in the last throes of Q4 and everything's you know the biggest quarter of things riding on it the, the stocks just tanked people's morale was you know I mean what's going to happen and. That was the time to rally the troops and say, okay, it's it's time to go ask customers to step up for us. And they did. And and I'm convinced that we had those buffalo chips or whatever kind of equity you want to call it from having done right by them over the years. And, and my memory, Joe, is there were, you know, many customers who bought more yes. than they were planning Correct. for that reason. Yes, and, you know, everybody talks about, oh, the customer, the customer, the customer. And, and, you know, for the most part, at a lot of companies, the real culture is, um, you know, the only people we hate more than our employees are our customers, 
<laughs> right? And yeah. so step on an airline nowadays. Oh gosh, we got customers. <laughs> you know, I had the I had the opportunity to have the CEO of uh, United Airlines on this podcast, and I said it's not going to be a good idea for him. So let's not do that. (laughs) (laughs) So this incredible thing of at that point, the company's more than a decade old and has massive customers, the biggest banks and insurance companies and tech companies and telecom companies and pharma companies and you name it all around the world. And so many of them said, you know what, we're, we're going to do that. The other thing I remember, and I want to see if you remember this, it goes back to the leadership discussion we had, Joe. I can remember sitting in the executive conference room, and there was probably 10 or 12 of us in the room, you know, most of the senior people. And uh, I can remember you walking us through the top deals we had that quarter. And I remember distinctly divvying up those deals amongst the senior executive team and saying, okay, we got to swarm these customers and we got to get executives on planes. And while we're doing that, we're going to connect the dots between our offices. And if you're the executive going to Hong Kong to meet with Hong Kong Bank or, or whoever, um, you're also going to go to that office and, and make sure that people understand this is a legendary company. We are going to continue to be incredibly successful. You know, keep the puppies in the box. And, 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 and I remember distinctly, you know, getting on a plane, it felt like on November 12th, but it, very shortly thereafter, mm-hmm. and not coming home until, you know, right, right before uh, Christmas – and, and I've never seen any company do this where the executive team swarms on the top customers, swarms on the top offices with the most employees, and somehow we, 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 we pulled it off. Divide and conquer and the attitude that, you know, it's not – it's everybody's in the boat, right? And, every, and everybody has got to do their part. And, and, you know, I look back at that, that – month and a half or whatever that time period was is, is something that, you know, I never forget. And, and I think Christopher, what it's really spoke to is the culture we created. And you remember that leadership team. I mean, you know, it, it was, it was really interesting and, and, and the challenge and debate and, you know, but I mean, there was some real world-class folks in each one of those slots. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I hear all the time Mercury's kind of, contribution to the Valley in terms of leadership that came out of that company is second to none. I mean, to this day, and it's been, like you said, 15 years and, you know, well, and it's the, that Mercury halo is, is prominent today. Yes. Yes. And that was just the kind of the culture. I mean, it was, you know, it was everybody's job and nobody questioned it and everybody jumped in and, and divided and conquered. And like I said, delivered the biggest quarter by far. By the way, it wasn't even close. By far the biggest quarter we'd we'd done in history. And I and I think I look back at that when HP acquired us, it was four and a half billion dollars, which is a lot of money at the time, still is. And and it was directly attributed to that result because if it'd gone the other way, you know, the the acquisition uh, would have been for far less. And so, 
you know, everybody stepping up and doing more than their part. It was just, it was just kind of, it was ingrained in you and everybody felt that sense of ownership and, and, uh, and responsibility, you know, to the, to the company goal. The other interesting thing about being able to deal with that challenge. So we talked about how, how, you know, years and years and years of really being committed to customer success in a no bullshit way. And on the culture side, um, we had a very field sales oriented culture. And so for the non-sales executives like myself, um, we spent an inordinate amount of time in the field anyway. Yes. We, you know, I, I had a lot of windshield time too. I mean, I was, if it wasn't 50% of the time, it was damn near close. Absolutely. And, um, and so the other massive culture point that I try to coach executive teams on is if you build that customer facing sales oriented executive team, if all the executives are sponsors of certain relationships, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If, if, you know, we had different executives who, who took different regions under their wing. I remember for a while I was the executive sponsor of our Latin American business and all these sorts of things. Right. And so when it came time for everybody to go in the field, the head of engineering, you know, uh, HR, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We were such a customer slash sales oriented executive team. It was like, of course, that's what we're going to do. And we had executives who were good in front of customers. It wasn't like for the first time, go out and do it. No, that's what we'd always done. Now it was, it was on steroids. I mean, because the, um, the importance really mattered in the focus, but it wasn't like we're asking people to do things they hadn't been doing all along. And you know, and, and there was, there was no question. There was no debate. There was no hesitation. It was just, okay, who's going to take who and away we go. And, you know, that was a, that was a quarter that, you know, there's quarters, but then there's quarters. <laughs> that was one that uh, uh, I'll never forget. That is probably the single most extraordinary quarter I have been. Same here. Part of. Same here. Yeah. Same here. And, yeah. and it's not even close, you know, what would be number two. Right. Now, to go from that, I want to go to a, what might seem like a small thing, but it was always such a big thing uh, to me about you, which is you would uh, MBO the field on certain things. And I'll never forget when we, we had done an update to the BTO point of view and we had a new corporate deck. And I remember you had come to me and said, look, the, the deck's great and da, 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 but I want the reps to be able to do the chalk talk w- with no computer. And so I did a video of the chalk talk and yep. describing BTO and how you write all that stuff. And you, you know, I, I, I share this with people about enablement. You not only said to the field, you got to watch this and study this video. No, 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 no. You said... You got to be certified on it, correct? And if you're not certified on it, uh, maybe you remember you're not going to get your whole commission check. Mm-hmm. And then that was that was extraordinary. And then you did the extraordinary on top of the extraordinary, which is you said, "I am going to every office, and I'm going to sit in the office and 
Fred, Wilma, Betty, and Barney are going to get up in front of me, the head of sales, and you have to do the chalk talk, the 10-minute chalk talk. And you're either going to get a thumbs up and a thumbs or a thumbs down. And I, I remember going and doing a bunch of these with you. And so here you are, the head of sales, and you are getting into the field and going. I mean, I remember doing this in Dallas and in Atlanta, and, and you did way more offices than I did. And so tell me about the thinking behind that kind of activity that I think most CROs or senior executives would go, I'm not going to spend all this time flying around the country doing this stuff. You know, I think the most important thing, and I would call it, you know, whether you call it a first meeting deck or the whatever the name for it is, but the first pitch you give to a prospect has got to connect. You don't get the second, third, and subsequent meetings if you don't connect on the first, the first, uh, the message you deliver. And so for me, you know, use sports as an analogy. Um, Practice is where you win or lose games. Games are the fun part. And so my attitude was, is if we can get you ready in the hardest thing you can do, because think about this, the hardest thing you can do is give a pitch when the audience knows what the pitch is, right? I mean, if I go to a prospect, I can say anything I want. They're going to know if I'm right, wrong, or indifferent. But to the internal, you know, your leaders and, and your colleagues, they all know what the pitch is. And there's nothing more stressful, nothing, there's no greater pressure. So from my perspective, if you can do that, then again, like game time, it's fun because you got it down so much. And and I always used to try to reiterate to people, I'm not doing this to embarrass you, to make you feel uncomfortable necessarily, just to have you feel uncomfortable. I'm doing it because I want you to be great. And when game time comes, we're, we're not talking about grades. This is not school. We're talking about money. We're talking about feeding your family and, and advancing your career. So I want you to be the best you can be. So I'm going to put you in the most stressful situation. I possibly can. And I want to make sure you can go through that because when it really matters, when it really counts, you, you'll, you'll be on fire. And I've done that subsequent to every company I've been associated with, whether I'm, I'm running operationally or on boards, that certification uh, is, is everything. And, and, and so it's a combination of the message, which you were masterful at crafting with BTO. That was to this day. I mean, <laughs> How you're able to take testing and make it interesting is, is just stunning. But now to be able to deliver that message as a rep uh, was everything. And uh, I tell you the other thing I've always tried to do as a leader, if you ever go to a lot of these meetings, a lot of the leaders sit in the back. And I'm talking about when somebody's up doing a presentation and so on, and where there's product presentations, marketing, QBRs, I've always wanted to sit in the front because I want people to know. And, and observe me, right? Because I think leadership is is just that. I mean, you lead from the front. And I always thought, I know it sounds subtle, but, and I've had people say that to me, you're sitting up front and you're taking notes and you're paying attention. You, you better believe I am, right? Because, I mean, whoever's up there is 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 trying to help us all. And I'm not going to sit in the back and, you know, kind, kind of uh, halfway be in. I'm going to be all in. And when you're up front, people can see that. So I, it's it's kind of that same concept is, you know, you lead from the front. You got to make sure your people are ready. Um, so when game time comes, you know, they can produce. So legendary. And I, I remember when I, uh, the first Mercury World I went to, I was stunned that the entire executive team was in the front row. Yep. Yes. For all the main stage sessions, yes. ev- every single one of them. Yep. 
Yes. For that exact reason. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting when people talk about culture, they talk about a lot of big things, you know, big C culture. Yeah. It's the little C culture stuff. It's the head of sales is going to go to every fucking office and sit there for hours and and give them the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And and I remember you and I, you mostly giving them the thumbs down. You're like, no, this doesn't yep. work. You yep. got to. You got to watch that video, go home and practice in front of the mirror, do what you need to do. But um, that that's not up to par. Correct. Correct. You know, it's 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 what you do, not what you say that matters. Um, it's easy to talk the talk. It's hard to walk the talk. And I think, you know, a lot of a lot of folks talk, you know, talk about certain things in a certain way. But, you know, you, you've got to lead by example. You've got to lead from the front. You've got to walk the talk. And um I think that, you know, it sets a good example. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's true. I'd never do something you won't ask people to do. Right. I mean, that's, you know, leadership one-on-one, but a lot of that has to do with uh, those kind of examples. Now, Joe, clearly I could talk to you about this stuff for many, many, many hours. We could do a 15 part series. It's been fun. But I also want to be respectful of your time. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to touch on? I think, you know, the um, as I kind of sit here and I look out over the next seven or six or seven months, I mean, I do think this is a personal thing. I think the economy is going to get pretty rough. There's certainly a lot of signals there that indicate that. Um, I think that for folks out there, everything's cyclical. I mean, you know, as bad as it may get, it's never forever. Um, I think that, you know, you, you've got to remember some of the fundamentals in terms of making sure your prospects embrace value. And, and that's really what they're buying and, and, and hopefully helping you sell, um, you know, by being in the boat with you and, and being your advocates. But I think, you know, more than anything, especially in the sales world, um, positive thinking, you know, doing visualization, um, you know, I've always said the brain is a, is a powerful muscle. And uh, there was a thing I did at AppDynamics where I had this piece of paper and I wrote out, you know, here's the very first day I stood up in front of them. And this was, you know, I came from McAfee, which is a two and a half billion dollar company. And, and uh, AppDynamics was 12 million in revenue. Right. So, but I stood up in front of them and said, you know, we're going to go from, I think it was 28 million. They just completed and we're going to do um, 65 next year over a double. And, and I said, here's how we're going to do it. And I talked about all the teamwork and, you know, the, the various, uh, the ways we're going to get there. And we ended up doing 77, I think something like that. And, and kind of went from there. And I put that piece of paper on my mirror and every morning when I shaved and every morning when I brushed my teeth to go to bed, I read that. And I ingrained that. And I just, I think that, you know, there's something to be said for visualization, for positive thinking, you know, coupled with hard work and, and, uh, and kind of a, a can't, uh, a can't lose attitude. And I think that no matter how hard things get, um, that'll pull you through because, you know, like you said, I've been through 2000 and the whole dot com crash and the 2008 uh, fiasco. And no matter how hard it gets here, you know, there'll be another side to it. But I think mentally, if people can just kind of subscribe to that and remember that, especially in the sales world, um, you'll be fine. 
Amen. Hallelujah, brother. <laughs> and it's so interesting to hear you say that because I did exactly the same thing. It works. I heard this. It works. Yeah. It's, you know, affirmations. It sounds ridiculous. Positive thinking. Really? It yeah. sounds ridiculous. It right. sounds pop psychology. Right. But uh, I remember, um, and I, I, I got taught as a young man to write the affirmations in the, in the present tense, not in the future tense. Right. So, you know, I am actively enjoying my life doing da, 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 with my friends and family. I love my job where I get to, da, 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 you know, whatever the things are, right? And I, I held on to those uh, for a long time. And I had three, three ones that I wrote in my very early 20s. And like I, I crushed all of them. And then some, and it's, and I heard this story. I don't know if you heard this story. This is why I did it. That when John, uh, when Jim Carrey moved from Canada to Hollywood to, to go for it, he took a check when he got his bank account and he wrote out a check for $25 million Mm -hmm. to himself. Mm -hmm. And then in the four part of the check, you know, where you can make a note as to what the check was for. He said, for acting services. Mm -hmm. And he put it in his wallet. So every time he would go to his, and he didn't have a pot to piss in. He grew up poor. Every time he would open his wallet, he would see this $25 million check. And I don't remember for sure. I think it might've been the mask, but it was, you know, there was a point in time there where he was the biggest guy in Hollywood or certainly one of them. And one of those movies, I think it was the mask, but one of those big movies they paid him 25 million bucks. And he said, that's when I took it out of my wallet. <laughs> you know, it's funny because, and, and again, not to riff on that, but I did the same thing for me. Um, and, and I'd always done the visualization positive thing. When I was a sales rep, I had a thermometer and I'd color in the, the deals and track my progress, you know, kind of, to, you know, exploded out the top. But for me, um, in the year 2000, when they had the dot-com crash, I diversified and I'd, I'd made some good money with CA and, and, uh, and so on. So I diversified. I had all tech stocks, but I had high tech stocks, you know, the Cisco's and eh, there's no way they can, they can crash. Right. Except when they do. And so literally, you know, it went from being on top of the world to, you know, losing almost everything in the market. And I did the same thing. I, I, I took a check, I wrote it to myself and, you know, similar big amount and put it in my wallet and periodically pull that out and look at it. And, you know, it's since come true and then some, but there's just, you know, probably the one book I'd recommend other than play bigger, as I recommend it to all my CEOs, but the one book for me that changed my life was think and grow rich and written back in the twenties by Napoleon Hill. And it really drives home that whole visualization, positive thinking concept. And it works. And, and as silly as it sounds and corny as it sounds, um, you know, it's, and I can tell you story after story of reps and managers who've worked for me, who've done it mm-hmm. and realized their dreams. They've sent kids to college, bought vacation homes, you name it. Um, it, it works. And, you know, that's, uh, whether it's good times or bad. I mean, I highly encourage people to do that. Joe Sexton, you're a legend. I fucking love you. I love everything about you. Uh, oh, and one other thing. <laughs> I was talking to some friends about this this morning. Uh, well, of course, I have a little bit of, uh, or have had in the past, a little bit of uh, what most people would call envy. 
more around if that moron can do that and get paid that and like, what the fuck? Right. So kind of that, but I don't really have much of that. If any uh, today, point a uh, point B, which is the more important point. Um, I, I don't understand people who aren't happy for others success. And today I got a note from my, uh, the guy that owns the gym that I go to, who's become a, a really good friend. His name's Joey Wolf here in Santa Cruz. And a guy that he's known and, and trained and work with, Joey's a, a personal trainer. He owns a gym and his uh, specialty is baseball. He was a, a professional ball player. He ended up getting hurt. So he didn't make it to the big leagues, but he was in the minor leagues and and he's, he's incredible with kids and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, one of um, the quote-unquote kids that he coached is a guy named Mitch Hanniger. And Mitch is one of the top 25, 30 um, home run hitters in the major leagues today. And he's played, I believe, uh, his whole career for Seattle. And uh, I woke up this morning and I got a, a text from Joey and it said, and I've met Mitch a couple times. I wouldn't say I know him, but he's a very affable guy. And if, if, if you met Mitch, you would have no idea who he is. I mean, he's just a very, you know, incredible guy. Anyway, Mitch just signed a three-year, $43 million contract with San Francisco. That's fantastic. Hometown boy. Yeah. Playing for the hometown team. $43 million. And I've been buzzing all day. I, I am so excited. I, like, I just, I'm so excited for this young man. Yes. Anyway, I'm getting to a point about you. Every time, you know, I, I remember when the AppD outcome happened. And I just, I, I got to tell you, I'm so happy for your success. What you've done post-Mercury is legendary. And you're an incredible guy. And your success makes me incredibly happy. You know, Christopher, I'll tell you this. The thing that brings me the most joy is seeing people like, you remember John McCracken and Mike Carpenter at CrowdStrike and, you know, Dolly Rogic and Jeremy Dugan at, uh, at AppDynamics. And, and the list goes on. Mike Fay, who you remember at uh, Mercury, is now CEO of probably one of the hardest, hottest startups on the planet. That's my greatest joy is to see those folks you know, who've, who've learned something from you and have gone on to do even bigger and better things. That's to me, if you have that kind of attitude, everything's going to be fine because that's what it's about. I mean, you know, getting joy from seeing success of others that, you know, you've, you've come to know and root for, you know, there's, there's nothing greater in business than that. Nothing greater. Well, and your success your success is is a source of great joy for me. Yeah, I appreciate it. I'm your number one fan. <laughs> Thank you, brother. I'm your number one fan. And if you ever decide to run for political office, I will um, happily be your campaign uh, chair. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Sexton for president. <laughs> and the truth will be on our side. I've always said the problem with politics, it's Hollywood for the ugly. So I'll, I'll probably stay away from that one. <laughs> 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 not that I'm not ugly, but I'd, I'd, I'd steer away from that one. <laughs> You're a very handsome guy. Joe Sexton, thank you so much. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you, Christopher. You're incredible.
I miss you. I'm so glad we Same had here. this time. Same here. Talk to Thank you. Thank you, soon. brother. See you, man. Bye. Thank you. Well, there he is, the legendary Joe Sexton. Thank you, Joe. I'm so glad you came on. I'm so glad to have this conversation. And uh, I might be corny to say, but hey, Joe, I'm so glad to have you in my life. Uh, now, make sure you are following or subscribing or whatever it is you're supposed to be doing now with Oddcasts on your Oddcast player of choice. Because next week, how a billion-dollar-plus business unit inside trillion-dollar Microsoft slash LinkedIn designed a new category with uh, marketing executive Gail Moody Bird. That's next week. Make sure you are following and subscribed. All right. We would like to thank. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and attention. We deeply appreciate you. Everybody here does investing part of your life with us. And um, if you enjoy uh, non-obvious content like like the stuff you just heard, it's time to pick up your copy of number one bestseller, A Marketer's Guide to Category Design, How to Escape the Better Trap, Damn the Demand, and Launch a Lightning Strike Strategy on Amazon.com right now. A Marketer's Guide to Category Design. Also, want to remind you that the legendary people at Doctors Without Borders are saving lives right now in places like the Ukraine war zone and in the tragic earthquake in Turkey and Syria. If you want to make a difference today in some of the toughest places on planet Earth, visit doctorswithoutborders.org today. That's doctorswithoutborders.org. I've been uh, supporting them for about 25 years, and I plan to support them for as long as I'm around. Doctorswithoutborders.org. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and it does contain content known to the state of California to cause radically non-obvious thinking and new categories and exponential results. Uh, we must uh, inform you that all oddcasts do contain nuts and all rights are disturbed. Please contact your doctor, lawyer, accountant, yoga instructor, shaman sensei, and category designer before uh, acting on anything that you heard uh, today or, frankly, anytime. Remember that thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo, and he's got a legendary new Oddcast studio in the Los, the Los Angeles? <laughs> the Los Angeles area. Check him out at jason.fyi. That's jason.fyi. Sarah Knox and Jimmy J do our legendary technical execution around here, and they also build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon, the Bobus Brothers, RJ and EX, do our web development, and Cedric Biros does our graphic and web uh, design. <laughs> Jeez Louise Lockhead. Our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind, and our law firm is Weed and Jack. We record on squadcast.fm. Don't forget that Joan Jett was right, and listen to Chris Stapleton. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad, and hey, Colin. This oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest uh, regrets go out to uh, Andrew Tate. Sorry, Tate. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Uh, please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.